It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello to everyone listening. Welcome to all. Today I continue to discuss the question, is belief in God reasonable? Of course, if God does not exist, then it is certain that belief in God is not reasonable. How can I know that God exists? The Bible reveals at least four sources. One, there is the entire Bible, the Word of God, that reveals God's attributes. Two, there is creation. Three, there are the inner parts of man. And four, there is reason. Regarding one, the Bible teaches that God is the source of all truth and makes truth known in various ways. This is summed up in Psalms chapter 36, verse 9, quotes, In your light we see light, end quotes. In terms of two, the Bible affirms that God has revealed himself as creator through nature. This is called general revelation. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul discusses the culpability of the human race before God for their rebellion and their idolatry. Quote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible divine attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that people are without excuse, end quotes. Regarding three, God has implanted into human beings who are made in the image of God a heart, a conscience, and thoughts. The conscience acts as a moral monitor. That's found in Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. Finally, regarding four, the Greek word logos has two basic meanings. First, it means word, and second, it means reason. And these two meanings are always intertwined. When logos is translated as word, a thing uttered, speech, or communication, then as such it becomes almost a synonym for the Christian message. In the New Testament, there is one technical use of the word logos. It occurs in John 1, verse 1, where John calls Jesus the Word. He is the hub around which all things Christian revolve. It culminates in the great saying concerning the Incarnation. The word Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's found in John 1, verse 14. 
In Jewish thought, a word was more than a sound expressing a meaning. A word actually did things. It causes things. In the creation story, God's word creates. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Other passages show what God accomplishes by speaking. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, for he spoke, and it was done. He sent his word, and it healed them. God's word will accomplish that which God pleases. In Jewish thought, there is another great conception connected to God's word. The conception of wisdom. The Greek word is Sophia, which created and sustained the world which God made. This is especially so in the Old Testament in Proverbs. So at the back of the idea of Jesus as the Word, the Logos of God, we have three great conceptions. First, God's Word is not only speech, it is power. Second, it is impossible to separate the ideas of Word and wisdom. And third, Word and reason are connected together. Some Christians object to theistic arguments because of the effects of sin on the mind. Douglas Gruthius, author of Christian Apologetics, says this, quotes, There is no doubt that human reasoning and human reasoners have been adversely affected by the fall. However, reason itself, the logical structure of argument, is based on the eternal character of God as the Word. And on this bestowal of reason to creatures made in His image and likeness. In that sense, reason is not fallen. Reason in itself cannot be fallen and remain reason. Users of reason, however, are corrupted and so are subject to multifarious errors of judgment based on ignorance, turpitude, sloth, and even willful self-deception, such that they become unreasonable and irrational. Nevertheless, sound reasoning is the norm for people willing to follow truth wherever it leads. Since the Bible advocates apologetics, and since many of our contemporaries fail to believe in the existence of God, it makes good sense to offer persuasive arguments for the existence of God. So the first task for this program is to give reasons concerning the evidence for God's existence. That is why I've begun to recollect some of the arguments I've already given in this program. C.S. Lewis began his book, Mere Christianity, by arguing that an objective moral law entails a moral lawgiver. He said, there is, quote, something which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. Because after all, 
The only other thing we know is matter. And you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. Several times on this program, I've said that it can be shown that a moral lawgiver actually is God. In the book, Answering Atheism, page 178, the author, Trent Horn, formulates the following argument that will support my claim. Premise one, objective moral truths exist. Premise two, these objective moral truths have either a natural origin or a supernatural origin in God. Premise three, natural origins are inadequate to explain objective moral truths. Conclusion, therefore, objective moral truths have a supernatural origin in God. There is a similar argument in Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Peter Kreeft and Ronald Ticelli. They basically replace natural origins and supernatural origins with atheistic view and religious view. In episodes 74 and 75, I gave nine reasons supporting the truth of premise one, that moral truths exist. Premise two is just a matter of logic. The two alternatives of natural origin or supernatural origin in God cover the entire gambit of possibilities, and these two alternatives are mutually exclusive. So the weight of this argument rests on the third premise, that natural origins are inadequate to explain objective moral truths. Given the truth of premise one, that objective moral truths do exist, then the next obvious question will be, what is their source? Where do these moral truths come from? Knowing that morality must be grounded in some authority, the skeptic's desperate struggle is to find any alternative other than God. In episode 98, I gave 12 natural sources, including science, culture, or society, and evolution, all of which fail to be adequate for objective moral truths because moral truths can only come to us from a personal being. No impersonal force can lay a duty on us for the simple reason that it cannot promulgate a law. Only an intelligent agent can do so. Thus I have shown the inadequacy of the natural origins alternative in Trent Horton's argument. Therefore we see that objective moral truths have a supernatural origin in God. But skeptics still cling desperately to their search for an alternative other than God. In his book, The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine Moral Values, Sam Harris attempts to establish a morality without God. He says, quotes, Science can, in principle, help us understand what we should do and should want to live the best lives possible, end quotes. Thus, Harris and others in the atheistic camp cling to the presumption that science can tell us what is morally right 
and wrong independently of the theistic claim that God alone is the source of moral truths. Most academics would admit that ethics is in the arena of philosophy, not science. However, when you hold to a view that natural science is the only reliable way to secure knowledge of anything, then you are forced to look to it for all your ideas and you are restricted to the limitations of science. In other words, our religious or philosophical beliefs do not appropriately inform our understanding of any given claim. Only silence defines our reality. That view, held by all atheists according to the Atheist Guide to Reality by the Duke University philosophy professor Alex Rosenberg, is what is called scientism. One philosophical issue raised by scientism is the fact that that thesis of the correctness of natural science is not itself a product of natural science. So it does not itself meet its own criteria. If we cannot know scientifically that scientism is true, why should we believe scientism is in the first place? Its claim is self-defeating. Additionally, this attempt to appeal to scientism to explain moral truth is doomed because science has its limits. Even the Scottish agnostic philosopher David Hume, famous for his writings against belief in miracles, argued that no description of the way the world is scientifically can tell us how we ought to live morally. Nevertheless, Harris still attempts the impossible in trying to do this. The main thesis of Harris's book is that goodness is just the same thing as increasing the well-being of conscious creatures. Therefore, according to Harris, an action is right, and we ought to do it, if it increases well-being. And it is wrong, and we ought not to do it, if it decreases well-being. What makes Harris's proposal so seductive is that it seems obviously true. Of course, it is bad to cause pain and misery for no good reason. It is good to help human beings thrive. It makes sense that we ought to do good and avoid evil. But the problem is, although we all certainly agree that these things are true, we are not certain of the reasons why they are true. So according to Harris, morality comes down to this. Judge your actions by whether or not they hurt everyone. Does this mean that if my actions hurt only a few, then I'm okay? That's like someone who committed a murder standing before a judge and saying, I know I killed that man. But think of all the people in this town that I didn't kill. If Harris claims that science can prove these statements are true, then he must present scientific evidence for his claim. His assumption that we ought to improve the well-being of humans is a philosophical position and not a scientific one.
So Harris does not show that science can give us moral truths because he resorted to using philosophical claims. The fact remains that science has no way to bridge the gap between the facts of experiments and moral truth. There is no way to go from is to ought. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.